Hello everyone. So it is almost eight. I've take my, taken my melatonin, but I just thought I would share with you this blog post that um, I'm going to be reading for the first time, kind of in there in preparation for a Twitter spaces that we're going to do with Daniel Tut. So super excited about it. And I've ordered this book, so I should get it tomorrow and start reading it. So I'm sure I'll do a video on like my own textual analysis of it as I get to it. Although honestly, I didn't get to reading anything today. It just felt like a busier day. Um, productive in certain ways, but not in reading, which is always just the main focus of my life, honestly. Um, but okay, let's see actually. I'm going to go to about. Okay, so I'm just going to read a bio here. And let's see. Okay. Um, let's see. It says, Hi, I'm Daniel. Welcome to my website. And this is danieltut.com, which I'll link in the description below. And I'm definitely going to be exploring this website myself. So. Daniel Tut, I assume Dr. Daniel Tut, is a founder of study groups in psychoanalysis and politics, a public learning platform that offers study groups, seminars, and podcasts. Amazing. I need to open that in a new link. I want to be a part of that. Do I have to pay to be a part of it? Probably. Okay, well, we'll see. We'll see if it's in my budget. Um, I'm sure it's worth it, but whether it's in my budget is, is not sure. Um, cause I'm not good at, at budgeting. Okay. So that didn't make any sense. Author of psychoanalysis and the politics of the family, the crisis of initiation. Interesting. Currently writing a book, perspectivism or praxis, the new Marxist critique of Nietzsche. Awesome. I host a podcast, and this is Daniel Tut, not me. Um, I host a podcast for the left with a focus on Marxist theory, psychoanalysis, and philosophy at Jusance, Vampires, and Zero Books. Awesome. I've taught philosophy at George Washington U University, Marymount University, and at the DC jail. Right. Wow. Researcher on Islamophobia. That's cool. Producer and director of several films. Okay, and then it says, as a warning, many of the posts on this website are older material, which I may not still agree with. I started posting my writing on this website in 2006. Okay, that's, you know, that's exciting. Let's see if we can go back. Um, so what I'm gonna be reading was posted on April 5th, 2019, on Kolakowski and the Neoplatonist Platonist, Neoplatonist, prehistory of Marxism. So I'm just going to read this. I'm, I doubt I'll have many thoughts on it yet, as yet, because this is in maybe a new area for me, but we'll see. And I'm sharing it with you. So let me know what you think. With increasing interest in new forms of Marxism, the philosophical origins of Marxist thought have been a topic of important debate with many studies locating Marxist early thought in Christian theology. The early Marx often reads like a quasi-theologian when he discusses ideas of universality and the emancipation of the proletariat. 
But does Marx's early thought stem from Christianity or does it have an earlier prehistory? So, Plato. Interesting. And good writing, obviously. The deconstructionist philosopher Jacob Taub, Taub identifies certain strange of, strains of mystical Christianity as a formative genealogical precursor to Marx's idea of dialectical history and universality. Specifically, Todd locates, Todd is, a, is it French? Locates Hegel's and Marx's thought in the writings of the 2012th century theologian, um, Joachim, maybe, of Fiore, Fiore, um, Fiore, probably. And his idea of, I mean, probably, what do I know? Uh, and his idea of salvation-based apocalyptic history which he argues serves as the first materialist dialectical account of historical change. The philosophers Giorgio Agamben and Elaine Badio have similarly sought the theological origins of Marx and St. Paul and his idea of universal Christian community. That's interesting. I mean, I mean, it's something I never thought about and I haven't read before. But just, I guess, yeah, the idea of community like when I think about I guess the book of Acts and people getting together and I think there's talk of like sharing bread and of course you know you have Jesus going and eating at different people's houses and telling his disciples to not carry anything it's like chosen poverty um, and letting those who benefit from your own, like, the good teachings, the good word, right? And what you have to benefit them intellectually and spiritually. And they will, you know, in return, provide the basic necessities. And then, yeah, I guess that does make me think of Plato then. Um, why does that make me think of Plato? Oh, yeah, okay, sorry. Um, well, it makes me think of Socrates, actually. Um, you know, because he always says that, according to Plato, that he is teaching and he's so unlike those who charge for their teachings, you know, he doesn't have like corrupted motivations or impure motivations. He just loves, and he did seem like a, a dude that just like loves to chat, chat it up like constantly, you know, going to people's houses and, and having conversations and making people think more critically. I mean, he was a a true, you know, professor slash socialite, but he always, he always reminded people up, you know, up until like the trial and his death that, you know, he was poor and, and so that's a sense of community, right? That chosen poverty in a sense, um, kind of leveling down and anti-consumerist, anti-capitalist in a sense. But then I guess also Plato really wanted the guardians and those who were really like the community, the members of the community who were going to contribute and be educated in order to contribute, <clears throat> wanted them to kind of be communal. I mean, even with the advice about parenting and the family structure, it was kind of like the village were the village raises the child and everyone eats together and even well especially the guardians I think it was just like the leaders that were supposed to do this had to sacrifice their possessions and live together and 
share everything in order to kind of foster a pure, and I just always hesitate when I use the word pure. I don't, I think it can mean like so many things, right? But um, let's say sincere. <laughs> that's, that's something that I mean. Um, a sincere sort of um, mindset and a, an, a mindset that was uncorrupted by why can I like not avoid being seemingly theological? Um, uncorrupted by, or moralistic at least, um, uncorrupted by, you know, sort of detrimental, unvirtuous kind of tendencies and inclinations, such as greed and power, etc. Like it was supposed to be, um, their sort of responsibility was to be in service of everyone. So, Okay, I can, yeah, I can see it. I can see it in the, in the first two paragraphs. So, great job. Okay, um, let's see. A neglected reading of the philosophical and theological origins of Marxist thought is presented in the work of Lysik Kolakowski, a 20th century scholar of Marxism, the 20th century scholar of Marxism, who locates Marxist philosophical thought in Neoplatonism. Kolakowski's genealogy locates Marxism as deeply embedded in the Neoplatonist idea of the contingency of the absolute. Okay, that's an interesting concept. I don't know if I understand. The contingency of the absolute. And he importantly extends this insight into the Augustinian controversy within Christianity between the theologians Pelagius and Jensenius. The contingency of the absolute. I hope that that's clarified or defined. I'm sure I'm supposed to know what it means. Hegel and Marx stand against, I haven't read a ton of Hegel, honestly, um, just the philosophy of right. And I'm starting to read this amazing commentary that Christopher Sator put on his Twitter and everyone had appeared everyone wanted a PDF of, but I just have to buy the book. So <laughs> I'm surprised I'm reading this online. I would probably print it out if I felt like I could do that. Okay. Marx, sorry, Hegel and Marx stand against the Jansenist idea that the absolute cannot be, oh, it is clarified, um, that the absolute cannot be brought into existence. Rather, the restoration of a lost contingency restored to humanity is imminently possible. Rather, the restoration of a lost contingency. I mean, I think when we're saying contingency, we just mean like a condition, right? Restored to humanity is imminently possible. There is a materialist Neoplatonism embedded in the core wager of Marx and Hegel. The proletariat is the collective agent that restores contingency as a theological wager in line with a materialist Neoplatonism that insists the universal can be brought about within the world, that faith can introduce a new non-supernatural transcendental, an act revolution, in parentheses, capable of completely reinventing the human being. Okay. Kolakowski's genealogy suggests that instead of locating Marx within the Enlightenment 
or even within the early Christian community, we should pick up Marxist thought as a renewal of the Augustinian tradition coming out of Neoplatonism. Over 1,000 pages of scholarship, that's true, I'm wondering how thin the pages are going to be when I get this book, um, Main Currents of Marxism, Kolakowski's Life Work, presents a convincing, I think, I don't think that the separate, original separate volumes are really, I mean, I think they're out of print. So, I just didn't know if I wanted to buy those. Super cool covers, though. So, I might, and they're not like $2,000 or anything, they're $26. But, you know, I just bought the, the new one. Okay. So, Kolakowski's study of Marxism, which this book has amazing reviews. Someone, I remember a review in particular of this, um, this book that Daniel Tutt is talking about, Main Currents of Marxism. Someone said that um, they were 18 and they, and they looked on Amazon and this was the only book on Marxism that they could find, and so they begged their mother to read it, and it introduced them to, like, the whole world of philosophy. So I thought, I mean, that review, like, like, whoever that person is, like, thank you to your present self and your 18-year-old self for convincing me to buy this book. I really didn't need convincing, but Kolakowski's study of Marxism too often goes ignored by readers of Marx today. But the book is a tour de force, unearthing the origins and key periods of Marx's thought from the early Marx to the golden age of Marxism up through Lenin and concludes with a breakdown period of 20th century Marxism. Kolakowski, who died in 2009, was a Polish humanist whose heterodox readings of Marx and staunch anti-Stalinism gained him high praise from the Western academic establishment. Due to some of the reactionary currents he swam in, contemporary Marxists must take his insights carefully. Much of his work remains deeply important for Marxists to read and think through, especially his work on the origins of Marxist thought. All right, and you have a dapper photo of him with his translucent cane. Good job, Steve Pike, for taking that photo. Okay, this is a new section, Neoplatonist Origins of Marxist Thought. Here we get into it. For Kolakowski, Marxism emerges as a philosophical approach to dealing with the problem of how to restore the contingency, in parentheses, species essence of humanity. Okay. Okay. There's a nuance of condition or... A question revolving around, I mean, I know what the word contingent means, but just sometimes in the context of philosophy, I feel like I don't actually know what it means anymore. A question revolving around <clears throat> the reconciliation of essence and existence, a problem that stems out of Neoplatonism. A core, if not the core, philosophical problem of Neoplatonism revolves around the conundrum that if nothing truly exists except for the absolute, the absolute is nothing. And if nothing truly exists but myself, I am nothing. 
Whatever is contingently real is therefore real on the condition that something else is real non-contingently. That is to say, is self-grounded. If the universe is dependent on the absolute, the absolute is indeed bound to be unique. Otherwise, two or more absolutes would limit or compete with each other, thus invalidating the assumption of self-sufficiency. Okay. So, I mean, is it within the definition of the absolute that there can only be one and it must be self-sufficient? Otherwise, it wouldn't be absolute. I mean, what if the absolutes were deterministically intertwined and superimposed upon one another? I just like to play devil's advocate. Um, that's probably nonsense, though. But since only the absolute is self-identical, as the Neoplatonists claim, man's essence lies outside of himself, and it is only by communing with the absolute that man is able to grapple with his own contingency. The political task of Neoplatonism revolves around the abolition of contingency, an abolition that subsumes man into universal being. For Neoplatonism, the intellect is submitted to the absolute like an indivisible whole. The task is to re restore contingency or the absolute by actualizing the absolute in one's time. This materialist restoration of the absolute would be a move that Hegel and especially Marx would develop. Neoplatonism links to Marx's philosophical project from Christian theology with the Neoplatonist philosopher John Scotus Erogena. Erogena is really, or maybe Erogena, I don't know. I feel like Harji. Is really the first philosopher to present a history of the salvation of being by negation. Man gradually becomes God. Oh, I don't know why, but I like that, right? It's just, it's just, you know, like the medieval mystics. I really love them. I don't know when John Scotus was. Was he a medieval mystic? That's probably a really stupid question. I know he's supposed to be in this group called the Scholastics, but that really doesn't mean a lot to me, I'm going to be honest. Um, but I like the idea. I always liked reading, like, Hildegard um, and... Like, what is it? Like, Matilda and Catherine and Teresa. They all have this idea of, like, the empty vessel. Like, theological negation. You have to empty yourself to be filled with Christ. It just makes a lot of sense to me. Erugena argues that evil has no cause, but rather it is caused by the corruption of the will. Okay, so it has no, it has no cause in the sense that it has no individual kind of origin. It is, it is like a twisting or a manipulation or corruption in the sense of something. So not like a direct, 
It's a transformation. It's a movement. It's a dynamic essence. Or no, not essence, entity. Maybe essence. Okay, I shouldn't try to explain. Even though the world of creation is fallen, man can still come into touch with his absolute being. Erigena, I'm gonna look that up later, argued that when we consider the whole, there is no such thing as evil. I mean, that sounds very much, if I remember correctly, like C.S. Lewis. And I thought that was so interesting when I was of some age reading in a Barnes and Noble. Um, I guess it might have been the screw tape letters or something else. I don't know if it was mere Christianity. Some book. Um, that was slender. Um, I remember a teaching observation that someone gave me, I guess, if that's the verb, and they said I needed to buy a blazer and stop saying, um, and I just did it three times, that's why I remember, I'll just always remember that, but she didn't tell me how to, to correct it, therein lies the continuance, I don't remember, oh yes, okay, so I just thought it was so interesting, one, that C.S. Lewis said, the reason God is God is because God can see everything as it really is. And we basically look through a glass darkly. And the other thing was that all of the like evil in the world was just another side of the coin. It was just something beautiful, like this, uh, like John Scotus was saying, um, corrupted. Or manipulated and so really I that means that I can see how evil doesn't have to exist because you could just basically like stop corrupting things right this emphasis on negation as a means of restoring contingency is also found in oh wait I just read that um, the medieval Christian theologian, Meister Eckhart, or maybe he didn't, who sees being and God as one and the same. The task of the, sal of the salvation of man for Eckhart is not to discover God in oneself, but to destroy God in oneself. Wow. I almost wanted to say a bad word there. I was so... I'm going to look up just super quick because I feel... Um, like I need to know. And I, you know, I should know because I watched, okay, Ireland, um, born 815, current era, and died 877. Okay, that's a little earlier than I was thinking. I don't know why I was thinking like 12th century. I don't know, I just put everyone in the 12th century, <laughs> so. Oh, and I should not. The, okay, so, love that. <clears throat> Let's see. For both theologians, though on, only the absolute is self-identical of claim, Neoplatonists also hold in common. 
This means that man's essence lies outside of himself, and it is only by communing with the absolute that man is able to grapple with his own contingency. According to Kolakowski, this Neoplatonist lineage is precisely what Hegel would develop in his critiques of Kant. The mind is not only the first principle, but it is the only reality for Hegel. In the false assumption of the Kantian separation between reason and the absolute is that it assumes that the absolute is ultimately non-graspable by reason. For Hegel, reason must be able to access the absolute. Otherwise, reason is given a contingent role. Okay, I'm going to say that my understanding of that is on a surface level because I need to read Kant. Okay, but I mean, I know I have read Kant, but I need to read Kant, if you know what I mean. For Hegel, mind or spirit possesses the power to look the negative in the face. Oh, Daniel, there's a, there's a little, there's a little S on there that shouldn't be there. Um, and dwell with it. Sorry, I'm in. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, I shouldn't correct. I shouldn't edit. <laughs> I just, it's hard to do. I do that in books too, you know? I feel like I always want to like write the publisher and say, hey, on page 57, there's a mistake. But I never do. I just circle the page and just, I'm happy to know it myself. I guess. Oh my goodness. I need help. Dwelling with the negative possesses a quasi-magical power that converts the negative into being. Yes. Hegel says that his thought presents the first break from objectivity and philosophy. In other words, a break of reason realizing itself as a mind capable of seeing itself and thus breaking with contingency. Importantly, since spirit actualizes itself in the world of culture and ethics, religion becomes a historically... That's interesting. Why culture and ethics? But that, that is true. That is the, like, the end of philosophy of mind. Like religion and philosophy and art. Oh, but religion becomes a historically downgraded mode of operating with consciousness merely of itself. And that's true. There's a, there's for sure a linear progression and a hierarchy in Hegel, like in all, everywhere, <laughs> every direction you could go. Religion becomes, okay, in other words, in religious forms of consciousness, consciousness has not been overcome. In lieu of religion, society must elevate to a position in which absolute knowledge comes to replace religion, a point in which being truth and certainty of truth have all become one. Why so secular, Hegel? The elimination of the contingency of mind and the conquest of freedom must be actually possible for Hegel. The Hegelian dialectic is an account of the historical process 
whereby consciousness overcomes its own contingency infinitude by constant self-differentiation. Hegel's philosophical framework thus follows Neoplatonism and its thinking that the abolition of contingency must result in a subsumption of mind into universal being. During Marx's time, the influential philosophical school known as the Young Hegelians asked what rules of reason must be adopted in order to discover the reason of history. In other words, they asked what are the rules of reason from history such that we can judge the world as it is now. What are the rules of reason from history? Okay. The answer Marx develops, which breaks from the young Hegelians, is that revolutionary theory must become a material force as soon as it takes hold of the masses. Marx, in his theses on Feuerbach, makes this argument most famously. To grasp the thing at its roots for the early Marx is akin to grasping the essence of man. Thus, the task of revolutionary theory is to grasp the essence of man, but man cannot be saved unless he is delivered from contingency. Since realizing the absolute is beyond religion, Marx rejects non-materialist atheism. Since realizing the absolute is beyond religion, non-materialist atheism. I, okay, maybe this quote will help. Here's a quote from Marx. I don't know. I have to say that my, this is, this, this feels to me kind of like high level stuff. I am, I can't say that I'm really understanding it completely. I just, I feel like there's a lot of reading that one needs to do as a as a foundation and a background to really be able to like embed oneself in this blog post so so we'll see what i can do in a week <laughs> atheism as a denial of that non-essentiality is also meaningless for atheism consists in denying the existence of God and establishing man's being on that denial. But socialism as such no longer needs assistance. It takes as its starting point the theoretical and practical sensual awareness of man and nature as an essence. It is the positive self-consciousness of man, which no longer stands in need of the abolition of religion, just as real life, I feel like I was going to have like a sudden twang there, abolition, um, just as real life as the positive reality of man, which no longer stands in need of the abolition of private property, that is to say communism. Marx, Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts of 1844, page a bourgeois atheism posits that deformations of consciousness are to be found within consciousness itself and not labor. This form of atheism remains a reactionary atheism. In the communist society, Marx envisions social relations will become transparent to all 
and will not be wrapped in religious mystifications. I mean, this is a lot of effort into a, a blog post. This, this should be like, like a book. It probably is. It probably is, is in a book or was a draft for the book. This is great. This is a great blog. I'm going to have to read more. Okay, so let me read that again. Um, in the communist society, Marx envisions social relations will become transparent to all and will not be wrapped in religious mystifications. Okay, that makes sense. I, I really get that sentence. Okay, it is important to note that by the time of his economic and philosophic manuscripts of 1844, Marx begins to pivot from the problem of restoring contingency to focus on how the critique of political economy and especially the critique of value, of the value form. Okay, new section, the limits of Neoplatonist worldview Marxism. If the Neoplatonist influence on Marx's thought remains a central node of Marx's thought, this is another way to say that Marxist humanism, or what I will name worldview Marxism, remains an important school of thought. I want to suggest that two of the more important worldview Marxists in the 20th century are... This is another name. Um, I just don't know. I just don't know. Something like George Lucas, maybe? Lucas? There's a... Okay. The Hungarian philosopher... I'm going to have to look that up. And Lucien Goldman, Lucien Goldman, the French philosopher of Jewish Romanian origin, origins. I hate when I can't pronounce names. Some of the most important contributions of Kolakowski's work are found in his criticism and praise of Lucas and Goldman and main currents. Okay, oh, what is, okay, you know what? I'm so sorry that I'm not smarter. Um, but that's always my problem. It's like, I guess when I start taking philosophy graduate classes, I will hear learned professors say names. Who is going? tell me how to say this name. I meant to go to YouTube and not just so we can hear. Someone is going to... Okay. Hmm. Oh, there's an interview. Which video should we look at? I really should pause this. Okay, I'm gonna pause it and be and be back because I feel like I'm gonna take a long time to do this. Okay, we are back. Um okay, so apologies. Uh Lukash is is how seems to be, his name seems to be pronounced. And then, I don't know, people are just saying 
George. So, or George, yeah. Lukash, I don't know. It's just the last name. We'll see. We'll, we'll be happy to know the last name. Okay, for Lukash, the question of restoring contingency is, is it an epistemological problem? Um, so, problem about knowledge, um, how we know what we know. Hegelian theory demonstrates that the, my students are in my unit right now, um, on rationalism is what we're going to talk about tomorrow, demonstrates that the whole comes prior to the facts of social life, and therefore the overall trend of historical evolution is more real than the data of experience. The work of critique of the social totality cannot be reconstructed by accumulating facts. It comes about when the proletariat's awareness of itself coincides with its own realization of the whole of universal history. Interesting. Socialism, socialism is thus not a historical necessity for Lukács. It is already present in events. Socialism is the higher totality, and to know the totality, we must apply a dialectical method to the totality. But Kolokowski claims this argument becomes circular. So socialism is the higher totality, and to know the totality, we must apply a dialectical method. So how can the proletariat, by virtue of their exploitation, be placed in a privileged epistemological position vis-a-vis -vis grasping the social totality. Oh, well, that's, that's feminist standpoint theory there, baby, right? Um, I mean, that's what feminist standpoint theory says. It's um, like a preferential, it, what was the phrase? It gives a, prevents, pre presents, We'll get there. Um, option for the marginalized um, by saying that, for instance, if you are, so yeah, so this is, I guess, Marxist feminism. Um, if you are at a marginal place or standpoint in society, you can more see the brokenness where the whole is sort of broken. The whole meaning, like the whole of the economy or something like that. So, you know, in in the in a way that the privileged cannot the the people who are exploiting or not exploited at least in the same ways or as much um, cannot see. You know, if I am, I don't have to live paycheck to paycheck. I make more than enough money, so I don't have to look at prices. The world seems fine, you know? I made it, why can't everyone else make it? But if you are not in that position and you always have to look at the prices and you have to decide, well, if I buy this, I'm not gonna be able to eat next week. So, you know, and you live paycheck to paycheck and you just, you know, you have your full-time job, but you just don't know how to get your house. You don't know how to get out of your situation that you're in. You think, you start to question, well, is this society really fair? Is this the best, you know, structure of the economy to really help everyone get to a certain desirable level of living? So, 
So I don't know how it's circular though. Oh wait, I guess is it circular because I know I should stop talking, but I just need to see if I can figure this out. Um is it circular because you have to be ex you always have to be exploited in order to to see? But once you're no longer exploited, then you can't see anymore. So that is, I guess, like a problem. I don't know if that's, if that's why it's circular, but. In Lucian Goldman's work, The Hidden God, a study of tragic vision in the Pensies of Pascal and the tragedies of Racine, Marxism is tied to the Augustinian debate we explored above. Goldman argues that Pascal, a disciple of Jansenism, is it Jansenism? Maybe it's, maybe it's like Janssenism. I don't know. Develops a reactionary and ultimately bourgeois account of God or the absolute. Pascal, similar to young Hegelians of Marx's time, denies the radical materialist status of the absolute and instead presents a worldview that accepts a tragic fate. God is at one and the same, both absent and present. The downfall of Pascalian thought is that the future is presented as a closed door and Interesting if I'm recording. And the past has been abolished, leaving only two possibilities before it, it nothingness or eternity. Goldman writes, and we are almost finished. Um, tragic greatness transforms the suffering which man is forced to endure because it is imposed upon him by a meaningless world into a freely chosen and creative suffering a going beyond human wretchedness by a significant action which rejects compromise and relative values in the name of a demand for absolute justice and truth. So it's like we're making something of our suffering. Marxism thus presents a new sort of faith as praxis, not one based on the certainty that God exists, Augustine, or in that of Pascal's wager on God's existence, the Marxist wager of faith is rather that history does have an eminent meaning. meaning. This wager is founded in the proposition that revolutionary action holds the potential for the restoration of the absolute within the world. The Augustinian and Pascalian traditions condemn the world without putting forward any hope of transforming it in and through history, which indicates the bourgeois worldview that undergirds the... I don't, I don't think that there is a continuance of that sentence. Goldman argues the proletariat can only emerge as a collective faith. Okay, so that, that makes sense to me, I think. Um, because, uh, you know, why is there, how can you condemn the world without putting forth any hope of transforming it? I mean, from my own sort of experience, Protestant experience, particularly, 
Um, it, the message was kind of that, you know, you should be, you should follow, I was going to say you should be the best person you can be, but it's more just following God's will and God's word and believing in God. And then if you do that, you will get to heaven, but the world isn't necessarily transformed. Like the world never really gets better. You just get to leave the world and like go through the pearly gates and live in a mansion. So, so yeah, so that, that's always the problem with that kind of, you know, sort of assumption or system because then, you know, why should we, you know, if everyone's just going to get to heaven, you know, or not, um, and the earth will pass away, then it's like, this is not our home. Why should we care for it? You know, there has to be a reason that we are good stewards of the earth. It has to either be a part of being, you know, following God, or it's just, it's hard to justify. I don't know where I stopped. Okay, Goldman argues that, argues the proletariat can only emerge as a collective faith in the future which men make for themselves in and through history. The faith of Marxism is based on materialist wager, on a materialist wager, that our actions will in fact be successful. In this sense, the decisionism of Pascal is very much part and parcel of the Marxist worldview. Lukács and Goldman are perhaps the last great worldview Marxists, a term coined by Michael Henrik to refer to a form of Marxism that places a unique and privileged role for the the Weltanschung worldview of the proletariat as a quasi-messianic class in capitalist society. Kolakowski's work helps scholars of Marxism to identify a surprising philosophical origin point of Marxist thought in Neoplatonism. What Kolakowski's critiques of Marxist, Marxist humanism show is that Neoplatonist emphasis, the Neoplatonist em- emphasis of Marxism, seems to disappear once Marxist thought crawls out from its worldview phase in the mid 20th century. But this philosophical prehistory remains a vital way to continue to grapple with Marx's early project. Okay, interesting. And then there's a comment that says, Taubes and Kolakowski are not the only ones. Cyril Smith as well said something similar. And I clicked on this before and I thought it was interesting because it's like a whole book (laughs) that you can read online. With the contents, um, Human Production and Divine Creation... Enlightenment versus magic, Schelling and Hegel, Feuerbach, Marx. So it says Karl Marx and Human Self Creation is an early draft written in 2002. Karl Marx and the Future of the Human. Oh, I'm going to have to look that up. Marx and the future. 
look at, oh, it's got two stars. And it's $49. Why? Who gave you two stars? Mm. Okay. Okay, well, I'll have to read this on my own time. Well, the last sentence is, the book gets two stars since Smith's intent is undoubtedly good, and the humanist nature of Marx cannot be stressed enough, but I cannot re recommend the book to anyone. Okay, well, if there were another review <laughs> to compare that. I don't know. We'll see. Okay, I can't buy it anyway. Um, maybe I will look at it in this free version um, for now. Okay, well, thank you everyone for spending some time with me. And I would say that I got the most from the first two paragraphs, but that is simply because, you know, um, it's just, it's just a little bit, mm, how can I, how can I not be self-deprecating, but also be honest? <laughs> no, I mean, this is, it's brilliant, um, but I just hope that reading the Kolakowski book will help me enter into a conversation about this. Yeah, but everyone go to danieltut.com and read all the blogs and yeah, I'm going to I'm going to read some Hegel, I think. That's what I'm going to do.